Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Dick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Larry Alex Taunton, and it's great to be with you on a beautiful spring day in the American South. And uh, today on the show, we're going to be discussing Islam. We have with us Dr. Jay Smith, who is an Islamicist. Uh, what that means is that he is, as I just said, he's, a, he's an expert on Islam. Uh, Jay is a Christian missionary who has been engaging with radical Muslims for some 24 years in uh, London. Uh, I have had the privilege of uh, witnessing his work firsthand there, um, uh, partnering with him in team debates at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, which is where all the real lively action uh, takes place. And uh, some of you may be thinking, well, this issue, I mean, Larry, I mean, we have the Russo-Ukrainian war going on right now. We have the economy. We have critical race theory. We have all these these other things that might be dominating uh, your headlines. All the more reason that I want to remind you that Islam is an issue that isn't going away. Uh, do not, do not uh, be lulled into thinking that this issue doesn't matter because I promise you, I promise you that it does, and I want to continually be putting it uh, in front of you because we really need to become Americans, Western Europeans, need to become much more knowledgeable of this uh, religion, what it is, what they believe, uh, how to engage um, with these people. Uh, and if you're a Christian, you particularly uh, want to get to uh, understand this religion learn how to defend your own faith, and to potentially become, for some of you, uh, what Jay Smith is, which is a polemicist, meaning he's going after the other guy's worldview. So let's welcome Dr. Jay Smith to the show. Jay, it's great to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Jay, uh, let's just dive right into it. How in the world does a guy become a missionary who is taking on radical Muslims? Well, I, I would be careful that this is something that not everybody should be doing. There is, a, I, you remember, I do what Paul did. There was only one Paul. There aren't many others that did what he did. I purposely go on the offense. Paul was on the offense. He did that. Berea, Cappadocia, Laodicea, he did that. Specific. And this is what we mean by polemics. Polemics is going on the offense. Going after the other guy's worldview as opposed to apologetics defending your own faith, defending your own worldview. Which is apologetics. Which is apologetics, yes. So um, how, do you, how did you end up here? I, I think because of my background, I think where I grew up, I was born in northern India. I grew up my first, well, my first 17 years were there in northern India where you have some of the most aggressive polemics against Christianity. The most aggressive and radical Muslims who are confronting us theologically come out of the Indian subcontinent. Well, that, I mean, what I mean by that is Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, representing about anywhere from 500 to 600 million Muslims, which is double the entire Arab-speaking world. So the vast majority of Muslims are in Asia, not in the Middle East. And that's where we're getting pummeled by Islam. So you, so you were born there, you were raised there, um, 
And you decided, I want to become a, uh, a missionary to Muslims? No, that's not how it happened. In fact, I was fed up with Islam by the time I left when I was 17. I, had, I want nothing more to do with Islam. I, their aggressiveness, I was so glad to go to a, a Christian country finally where I felt right at home. And I was, went through my undergraduate, even my postgraduate, my first master's degree was on... De, on and where was that? That was, well, it was in three different institutions. started at Covenant Seminary, then went to Westminster Seminary, and then I finished off at Eastern Seminary in Philadelphia. And that's where I learned my apologetics. Not Islamics. I had nothing, I didn't want anything to do with Islamics. But it was while I was there finishing off my Master of Divinity in apologetics that I went to a seminar where I heard three statistics, three numbers that were existed in 1981. We're now in 2022. So you can see we're talking about almost 40 years ago, well, over 40 years ago. And what I heard was there were 800 million Muslims, huge number. I didn't really compute that number. The next two numbers really shocked me. I was told that there were only 1,500 missionaries working amongst this 800 million and that they represented only 2% of all missionaries. And I remember turning to my wife saying, we've got to do something about it. This is atrocious. We're setting so few to the fastest growing religion on earth. We went to our mission office, said, listen, send us to the Muslim world. They say, we have no work in the Muslim world, which was symptomatic of most organizations back then. So I said, well, then second us to another organization. They seconded us to SIM, Sudan Interior Missions. I think it's called Society of International Ministries now. And we went to Senegal because that was the only place that no one wanted to go because you have to learn two languages. And so we said, yes, send us to those where you're used to languages. We learned French in France, went to Senegal, learned Wolof, and we're working amongst primarily uh, what, I would, what I would call folk Islamic groups. These are, these are the confreries in French. These are the brotherhoods, the Tijaniyas, the Kadriniyas. The, uh, these are the, uh, the groups that were birthed in the 11th and 12th century out of Iraq. They were not radical Islam at all. These were very much groups that were based on following a, uh, a marabu or a, a, a peer. Uh, these are scholars. Usually they're men that have received visions or revelations. They create talibes around them. These are disciples around them and they start their brotherhoods based on their own teaching. Not the Quran, not the following Muhammad, they're following those men. And this is what folk Islam is. And you see this all over the world, especially in West Africa. So that's the kind of Islam I came across, but I had just finished a master's degree at Fuller Seminary on radical Islam, on orthodox Islam, on the Islam of the Quran, the Islam of Muhammad. So I was not at all prepared for this kind of Islam. It was really a veneer of Islam that was much more anim uh, African animistic religion. What did your missionary efforts look like there? Well, of course, when I was having been introdu introduced to the contextual model there at Fuller Seminary, I assumed that the contextual model was the best way to go. So when you're in a con when you're in a foreign country, you walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, do everything they do 24/7. Become like them and contextualize the. This, this is the insider movement. No, it wasn't that at that time. This, that's something that a name that has been given since then. This but but the, that's essentially what it is. This yes. is the this was the beginning of okay. what then yes. became the insider movement. Yes. it was called the contextual movement, and uh, so I was all right with it. I just said, let's go for it. I wanted to contextualize. I thought we'd be the best contextual family, and so we became the Khan family. And my name was Yusuf Khan, which is the Joseph uh, in, in, in Arabic. My, my wife's name was Nafisatun. My son's name was Sheikh. So we were the Sheikh 
Khan family. And I went to the mosque. I prayed with the Muslims. I did the fast with the Muslims. For every practical purpose, I'd look like a Muslim. I grew a beard. There was a nice, big, bushy beard. I, I wore the grand boobus, which are these beautiful flowing robes that had beautiful filigree. And I was actually in the mosque for about two or three months, praying alongside the Muslims, going to the khutbahs, those that preach. But let, let's be clear. So people will be thinking here, so you're a Christian missionary and you're there praying to Allah? I was there. For, what do you mean, Dawah? Dawah means no, 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 like, Allah. Ah, uh, to Allah. Now, of yes. course, at that time, I assumed Allah was God. Yes. Every, in fact, there's an awful lot of missionaries today who still assume that. We'll correct that in just a bit. But certainly, I was praying to Allah at that time, and I was even including Muhammad in the prophetic in the prophetic race. I had no problem with that to begin with because I assumed that to be contextual, I had to take on everything that they were doing. One thing I did demand when I went into the mosque, I asked the, the marabu there, the leader, would it be okay if I prayed to Issa? He said, yes, pray to Issa. And, which would and be that the, is? That is the name for Jesus in yes. the Quran. It's the Quranic name for Jesus. I'm making sure you say that, you know, that's not the Arabic name. That's the Quranic name for Jesus. And so I prayed to Issa. It was about three months later that they came and he clapped me on the back. says, ah, so you've converted to Islam, we see. And I remember saying to him, no, I haven't. What made you think that? He says, well, you're... Only a Muslim would come and pray in the mosque. Only a Muslim would wear the grand bubu. Only a Muslim would do the fast. Only a Muslim would take on Islamic names like you have for yourself. And I realized that the message I was giving in, in trying to contextualize was not the message they were receiving. Two completely different messages. And that's why I backed away. And I realized this is a typical mistake that we make as Christians, and certainly Western Christians, because we don't have these forms and meaning the form meaning the form that with the meaning that goes along with it in christianity we, there is nothing really that we would dress like or that we would look like to show that we are a christian muslims have many forms that have a meaning that go with them the hijab is a form the beard the wrong beard the bushy beard is a form and the way they walk talk eat and drink for a muslim exemplifies how muhammad walked talked ate and drank so if you're going to do what Muhammad did, then you better be a Muslim if you are in certain locales. In Senegal, that was certainly the case. If you're here in Birmingham and you your wife started wearing the hijab, she better be a Muslim if she's wearing a hijab in Birmingham. If she were in Iran and she got off at the airplane, they'll give her a hijab because all women are to wear hijabs regardless of their religious background. So that's why it depends where you are, where, how the interpretation of that form. And what I was doing is I was imposing my meaning onto their form. And they were correcting me. And I realized contextualization only goes so far with Islam. Because many of the forms that we were contextualizing had a theological meaning that we were not giving to it. And that's where I was going too far. I was imposing a theological inter uh, interpretation on those forms. I backed off, realized I could not do this any longer. And that was the first time I realized that contextualization maybe would not be the best way to go. Because not only does it start as they see it as deceit, it starts with deceiving because you're doing something that a Christian should never do. And they would put themselves into our shoes and say, would we ever do this in a Christian nation? No, they would not try to pretend that they were Christian. They would remain a Muslim and they're proud they are Muslims. They regard us. I don't know if you're just watching the news today. Do you see what's happening in Sweden right now? They're having riots all over Sweden because they want to burn some Korans. Happening as we speak. See, you don't burn Qurans anywhere. It doesn't matter where. We can burn Bibles. No one will say diddly swat about it. We'll just say that's too bad. You're wasting a lot of money. We have plenty more to make to to uh, to give you if you have, if you do burn them. You don't even burn one Quran in Islam. What's the meaning of that? It's holy. It's sanctified. It is almost a divine object. 
they have deified it because they've made it, uh, they've, it is the uncreated cross. So there is the meaning that goes along with it that we don't understand. And that's what I was doing. And I realized I had to change course. What I realized what was fascinating is that we did other things instead, like we, gave, we, did, we showed the Jesus film. And we just opened up a boutique and we had people discuss, we would debate. And we started bringing in music. We started bringing hymnology and started creating Wolof songs in our home. And that started our worship service. And they had never seen that before. We started using the gemye, the, the drum, the African drum for all of our course, uh, for our worship. And that really brought in the crowds. And so we did other ways of contextualizing that didn't have a Christian meaning, didn't have a theological meaning, put it that way that would uh, contravene. And by doing that, we started our own church. But it was about that time that I heard that there was a real problem in a place called London with radical Muslims. Now this brought my antenna up because I love radical Muslims. They're the ones that I like to work with the best, probably because they're just like me, just, just like you, Larry. We're very radical Christians by, and defining radical as a root, like a radical number is a root number, the root of Islam, the root of Christianity, are what radicals are. We go back to our root. And what is our root? Well, our root is a book modeled by a man. The same goes for Islam. The root of Islam would be a book modeled by another man, another book, another man, a book in the man, book in the man. And that's where I really love to work with. Those are the people I love to work with the best. I'm sure you do as well. You saw that when you yeah, came to Yeah, absolutely. Corner. I enjoy the radicals most of all. I mean, obviously, the, the, the radicals are the ones you have more to to worry about. They're the ones who might knife you or try to shoot you or blow you up. Uh, but they're the people who really believe. And uh, I'm most interested. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to engage guys like, uh, you know, some of the so-called new atheists was because they struck me as new, as true believers. They, uh, they had thought about the big questions and they, they believe something regarding them. And the so-called radicals uh, in Islam are really just Orthodox Muslims who take their book and uh, their holy man seriously, uh, upon whom they're to base their lives. And I find them much more interesting to engage in. Um, and if you're successful, uh, if the Holy Spirit should, should bless and somebody, uh, you know, one of them should receive Christ, well, so much the better because... They're much more effective um, as missionaries. Their conversions are more Pauline. You know, they go from 180 from persecutors of the Christian faith to fearless proponents of it. And that's been your experience, I gather. That's been my experience. And they're the ones I find that I work best with because not only are we similar, I find that I can go much quicker with them because they get it much quicker than others. They understand. Well, they believe in absolutes. Well, not only that, they're also much more knowledgeable. They yeah. know their scriptures. They know who their prophet is. And they do not try to defend his, uh, they don't defend, well, put it this way. They defend his violence, but they show why he had to use violence. They don't try to tiptoe around that. Uh, they don't try to ameliorate it. They the the way Christians do about, um, you know, violence in our own scriptures. I, I, I I dislike the way Christians address violence uh, in the scriptures is they, they, they act like they're doing God a favor by not mentioning it or by tiptoeing around it. And uh, the way I look at it is I go, you know, God included it in there for a reason. But anyway, uh, yes, they are not very apologetic about these things. Uh, they embrace them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's interesting to me because those that are converts to the Christian faith, 
they completely get violence in our scriptures. They, they don't find that problematic at all. But anyway, so you decided to go, you, so you decide to go to London. What does that look like? Well, London is made up of mostly Af- uh, what I would call Indian subcontinent Muslims. These are the mu- much larger group that I was talking about earlier. Uh, they make up the larger group, and they are all brought and bred in English. All their educational system is in English because it's the British colonial system that is in- they've inherited. And since they have 30 to 300 different languages, you can't have education in every language. You use English textbooks. That's why the Indians are so far ahead of everybody else when it comes to engineering and when it comes to medicine because they read the same textbooks we read. They get the same material that we get. They're so much quicker and faster than the Chinese and the Russians and the others who are dependent on their own language textbooks. And that's why, in many respects, the English-bred and educated Muslims are way ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to attacking Christianity. That's why they dominate the debating scene. Look at the major players on the debates. Shabir Ali, Indian background. Um, Ahmadidat from Gujarat, though he lived in Durban. Shabarari lives in Toronto. Uh, Adnan Rashid, Pakistani. Zakir Knight from Mumbai. Look at all the major debaters. They're all either from India or from Pakistan or from Bangladesh. Show me one Muslim debater that's an Arab. Give mm-hmm. me one name. You can't. Interesting. There's no Arab debaters. They don't debate us because we don't even appear on their radar screen. And they don't read English. They all do everything in Arabic. There is no one attacking any Islamic uh, book or Muhammad in the Arab-speaking world. You won't live too long if you do. You won't, let, you won't stay very long. I shouldn't say live. You won't stay very long. You'll be thrown out within 48 hours. So that's why it doesn't exist in that part of the world. It almost is uniquely... On YouTube, it's on Twitter, and that's all English speaking, and that's why the Muslim, uh, the Indian uh, subcontinent, are way ahead of the rest of the world. But that's why, theologically speaking, they are the best and the brightest, and they're the ones that I found when I got to London. I was overwhelmed by their ability. They were so much further ahead. So this was a this was a very different type of Islam. This wasn't the folk Islam you were seeing in Senegal. Uh, this was a very different type of Islam that you were encountering in London. Well, it was the Islam that I grew up with, and so in some ways it was like coming home. But I had never really been into these in-depth kind of discussions. From the get-go, for the first day I went down to Speaker's Corner, where I was told the best place to meet the mad radical Muslims, which it was. Uh, I found that they didn't have Qurans in their hands. None of them had Qurans. They weren't there to defend anything because no one was attacking them. They were there to attack Christianity. And so they had Bibles in their hands. Post-it notes all the way through with all the seeming contradictions, all the historical anachronisms and the scientific errors. And they knew our Bible. Some of them had huge passages memorized in their heads. There was no one on our side that had done that with the Quran. And that's why I spent most of my time defending, 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 defending. Apologetics, apologetics. The problem with apologetics, if you only spend your time with apologetics, the crowd that's listening to you after two hours walk away thinking we have all the problems. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, For the the people who are listening to us, Speaker's Corner um, is a portion, it's a corner, a literal corner, in Hyde Park. Hyde Park is an enormous park. I think Central Park in New York. It's a it's an enormous park in central London, and there is a tradition, a very rich tradition, a couple of centuries of, um, of free speech that is permitted in Speaker's Corner, and it happens every Sunday afternoon. People gather, and you can just walk along and listen to 
uh, to the rational and, and to crackpots, you know, who are sharing every kind of ideas. Somebody's shouting death to America. Another guy is, is uh, sharing uh, um, how you can, uh, you know, become a millionaire if you follow his plan. You just keep walking along and people will begin to gather around. You can listen to any of them, but you, you know, people will begin to gather around somebody that they find interesting. And that might be somebody speaking on Islam. It might be a comedian. Uh, it might be somebody talking about critical race theory. It could be absolutely anything. And these debates that Jay is talking about, the radical Muslims gather at Speaker's Corner. And uh, there, uh, they proclaim their faith. They proclaim it in a big way. And Jay decided, you decided you're going to go down there and you would begin to engage them. And uh, initially, you weren't having much success with this, were you? No, it was absolutely, I was completely over overrun. I was told to get there in the afternoon. Speaker's Corner exists all day on Sunday. But the tendency in the morning, the Christians are there. Then come the homosexuals. Then come the, the social planners. And then come the... Uh, uh, Nation of Islam, and by about three o'clock, however, the Muslims start to come. They're late. They're late risers. And so they, the homosexuals and the uh, the Muslims are they they sleep late? Is that no, what's going homosexuals on? Homosexuals are there at the beginning, but they're not. Oh, okay. They're, by three o'clock, they leave. They don't okay. want anything to do with the Muslims. The Christians leave. Everybody leaves and gives the corner over to the Muslims by about three three thirty. So I made it my job to get there about three o'clock when the Muslims were at their strongest. They would take over the corner then, dominate the corner, and everybody else left because the Muslims were so violent. They did not allow people to critique or criticize or say anything against the Prophet Muhammad or against the Quran. And so that's why when I got started going down there, I was, you, you could see, there was all, everything was dominated by Islam. And they would have about 10 or 15 different landers. Each ladder had its own tali, uh, the, its own uh, teacher who had their tali base there. And, 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 and what you do when you're talking about ladders, down at Speaker's Corner, um, the speakers will frequently use a the kind of ladder you would use in the kitchen, a kind of a, kind a, of a step ladder, a, a little, little A-frame ladder that you get on just so you can get your head uh, above the crowd and be heard. Now, sometimes, you know, speakers are, you know, there's nobody's gathering around them. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, a half dozen. Uh, in the, uh, the the engagements, the debates that Jay is talking about, there might be hundreds of people. So in order to be heard, and you don't you don't use a mic, you're getting up there and you're just you're just booming from the diaphragm. I mean, you're just giving, uh, you're making your argument by standing above the crowd, and uh, and making your case for whatever it is, and in this case, for belief in Jesus Christ or for uh, a belief in Allah, belief in. Uh, uh, the Quran and uh, following the life of Muhammad. So you go down there and you begin to engage these radicals. What happens? Well, initially, I did not want to engage them on Islam. I was there just to introduce myself and to find out what the major themes were. And it was all attacking Christianity, attacking the Bible, attacking Jesus, attacking Paul, attacking our history, attacking the church, you name it, attack after attack after attack. And I just spent myself defending, 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 defending. I realized I needed to go on the offense and I didn't have much in my arsenal to go on the offense. I thought I had, I had a master's degree in Islam. I thought I knew everything, not until 1995. So I've been there three years by that time. I started in 1992. By 1995, I came across some new material. And this was the, the whole historical critique from uh, Dr. John Wansborough, from Dr. Gerald Hotting, Dr. Tisha Krohn, Dr. Michael Cook. These are all the main players that come from the School of Oriental and African Studies right there in London who are introducing this. They had been introduced this since the 1970s. So this had been around for about 20 years. I was, had never heard this before. It was first time I'd ever come across it. They don't 
don't teach us in America. This is only taught there at the at school of at the University of London. As I've now found, it's taught all through Germany, but they keep it in German. But that's something new. That's something that's just come out in the last year. So I was there introducing this for the first time, this historical material, the fact that we don't even know if there was a man named Muhammad. We don't even know if there was a city called Mecca. We don't even know if there was a book called the Quran. These three things, the book, the man, and the place, they didn't exist at all in the 7th century. Now, of course, the Muslims didn't know how to respond to this. They had never come across it before. And... A, they beat me up. I got knocked all, uh, I got knocked in conscious. Literally. Literally. But I, I don't know how many pairs of glasses I went through. They just broke my glasses. I would get up, put them back on again as whatever is left of them. Sometimes I'd be bleeding and I'd just keep going as if nothing ever happened. And that the only way I could maintain some type of composure is never to talk about it. Just keep going. And hopefully the guy that beat me up would have had, had left because usually they yell Allahu Akbar and then they take off before the police come. So then that became... It, it, it was. I realized that we were onto something here. This historical criticism they had no response for. They had never come across it before. I was challenged to a debate in 1995 uh, to a guy named Dr. Jamal Badawi, who was f flying through from Malaysia back to Canada where he was teaching. He had done a series of 300 videotapes on uh, VHS tapes on defending the Quran and all why the Quran is the greatest book in the history of mankind. And they wanted me to debate him on this. And so I said, okay, I'll debate with him. I didn't know who he was. I didn't understand his background, but, and I didn't even know how to debate. But we did so at Cambridge University, Trinity College, for two hours, and I gave 10 historical challenges, all that I got from Dr. Patricia Krune in Cambridge University the week before. He couldn't respond to any of these 10 challenges. And that's when the penny dropped for me. I realized if the best in the world can't even deal with these 10 questions, which are simple questions, then we, this, this is the Achilles heels of Islam. And I put that debate, that put that paper up on the internet in 1995. It's still there. It has yet to be answered. So we're in 2022. Can you see the problem here? Now that started 25 years ago, and I was at Speaker's Corner for 25 years, from 1992 to 2017. What I noticed is that in, in uh, of course, 2001, everything changed. From being a violent religion, it became a peaceful religion because of 9-11. The narrative changed. Once the narrative changed, it became a lot easier than to go down to Speaker's Corner and to get on the ladder and to actually get our, our material across. Now, what also was, I had a huge advantage in my favor. I grew up at 7,000 feet in the Himalaya Mountains. And every day to go to school, I have to run up 500 feet to get to school. If I forgot my pencil, I had to run back down and run back up again. I've got huge lungs. I've got five liter lungs. For my body side, I only need three and a half liters. So I got a liter and a half more than I needed. I was the number one, it's the number two runner in all of North India when it came to cross country. When I came to the United States and went to Messiah College, I never had to practice. And I was number one runner for four years at, at university, uh, Messiah University, all because of my lungs. So I have long, loud, loud, loud voice. The Muslims say I have a jinn in my voice. They can hear me when they come out of the tube stop right there at, at uh, Marble Arch, which is true. You can hear me from that far off. So I, it was a huge advantage. I didn't need any electronics. I didn't need any loudspeaker. I could just, my, I had, my lungs were my loudspeaker. So I could overwhelm these Muslim speakers. And that's one reason why the latter became an advantage for me to get up on it. Now, what I was fi fascinating is, we, when we would start hitting the historical critique, the Muslims shut down. 
what I was also noticing is that when we were mocking Muhammad and we were using all these things that David Wood uses or Hatun Tash uses of confronting Muhammad or confronting his character or confronting the Quran, Muslims would usually shut up and not say anything. They would just get angry and angry and angrier. And that's where this idea of Islamophobia and hate speech came from, leveled at us. And to be fair, it's about that close to hate speech because the stuff we were throwing about Muhammad was desultory. We were really shooting his sexual proclivities, looking at his violence. It's perfectly legitimate in any, in any university to ask these questions, but from a Muslim standpoint, it usually turned off the Muslims and they walked away. They didn't want to have to deal with these kind of things because they saw it so, as so objectionable. What I noticed, Larry, though, was when I asked the historical questions, I was no longer called Islamophobic. I was no longer called a hate preacher because there's nothing hateful about asking, did Muhammad exist? There's nothing hateful. You're no longer talking about his morality. You're no longer talking about his character. You're asking a much deeper question, a much more simple question. I, I would probably quibble with the characterization, and uh, maybe you'll agree with uh, what I'll say. Maybe you won't. I wouldn't call it hate speech. I do know that in Britain that they will call it hate speech. Um, I call it just speaking uh, truthfully and honestly about the hateful person that Muhammad was, but I don't call it hate speech, though they may characterize it as such. You're just raising the, you know, the very real historical um, details of who he was as you would any other historical figure with the kind of violent background uh, in history that, that, that Muhammad had. But I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, maybe we should say it's less offensive. What you were saying was far less offensive to them when you moved from asking those kind of questions or pointing out those historical details, which I think biographical details, which I think are important. But you moved from that to now going after um, the history, asking the questions about the, the authenticity, the authority of the history that the Quran claimed. Um, and you were seeing some success from this. Not only do they have a problem with it. See, this is another thing. The, the audience, the, the secular audience, does not like us using this type of material on Muhammad's character or his morality or whether or not whether or not uh, he had so many women or how many times he bedded a woman in a night or what he did with children and all the rest. They don't like to talk about it because for them, they see it as hate. They don't, we don't call it, but they call it almost bordering on hate speech, and they don't want to have to do it. No, I, I recognize that, but it doesn't change the reality. Nonetheless, that nonetheless you've got to remember, we've got to get people to actually sure, use this material. Sure, absolutely. Now can you understand why... I said this to this earlier when we were in another episode, when I talked about this atheist came up to me and says, you're the first person that's actually answering the questions we're asking. For him, that was material he could use yeah. because he saw that this was much more damaging, number one, because you're not even just saying whether or not he was relevant for today, because that's what we're asking. Is Muhammad relevant today? Who cares diddly swat if he didn't even exist? Yeah. See, if he didn't exist, you have all the right to ask that question. You're not stepping on anybody's toes and other people can use it. Because that's a legitimate question to ask, a simple question, the same question that was asked of Jesus Christ. But going to your biography just, just a bit, so you begin in India, you don't really want to have anything to do with Islam anymore. You go and spend five years in Senegal, and you do because you listen to a lecture that says we're hardly sending any missionaries to the Islamic world. You encounter folk Islam there, which was different, and you uh, you know model something that's like the uh, the insiders movement, and you begin to realize this is this is not the way to go about doing this. You you alter uh, your strategy, your methodology there. You begin to see some success, but then you begin hearing about um, radical, that is to say, orthodox Muslims 
in London. You come to London, and initially, you're kind of getting your tail kicked in these debates because they're raising a lot of questions you're not prepared to answer. So what you do is you go back to the laboratory, you begin to retool, you begin to find answers to the questions that these people are raising because they're attacking your book and your man. They're attacking the Bible and they're attacking Jesus Christ because they're coming to Speaker's Corner, not with Korans, but with carefully, you know, dog-eared uh, Bibles ready to raise all the kind of questions. The way, by the way, if, if you know, most of the people who are listening to us have not experienced this, except I would say to them, you know, you, you think you have it. You have when the, the Mormons come to your door <laughs> because they are coming in asking similar questions. I mean, they're, they're uh, you know, raising, uh, you know, passages in Scripture and using them in such a way as to undermine your confidence that what you think is the truth. And in order to give, uh, you know, I'll never forget one of them coming to me uh, um, when, uh, you know, a couple of them came and, you know, quoting Jesus, I have other sheep and they hear my voice. And I said, and you guys think this is a reference to you? I think it is a reference to Gentiles. But in any case, so you begin, you begin retooling. And even though you're getting your tail kicked, you didn't want to go back and engage these guys anymore, did you, initially? I mean, they beat you up physically and intellectually, and you didn't want to go back and engage them anymore, did you? No, it was my wife that made me go back. Judy said, you've got to get back on the ladder. You've got to relearn your material. What I found out, though, Larry, very quickly, is the questions that they were asking me, and I started looking at the questions they were asking me. They weren't really asking about Jesus' character, though we were asking about Muhammad's character. They weren't really asking me well, whether... No, they accept that Jesus was a prophet. There's and nothing a, you can a ask A perfect in life, yes. Not only that, there's no way, there's no reason. So what were they asking? They were asking whether or not we could trust the... the the, 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 the authority of the text. They and, want to know whether the, the, we could trust the manuscripts. Here. Yeah. They were the first one to ask me about the manuscript evidence. They were the first one to ask me about how do we know this is not all redacted from the fourth century, redacted the first century. They were asking me all these historical questions about Jesus, the fact that he, whether or not he was ever crucified or rose again. Well, these are historical criticism. So I said, well, why are they asking me this question? Because for them, that was hugely important. So I said, well, why don't we reverse it? Let's take the same question. Answer it for them, first of all, because we've done our homework on this, but then take the same question and throw it right back in their laps. Let's ask whether or not Muhammad existed. Let's ask whether or not the so city now, came So from. you went from apologetics to polemics, and it's because Judy forced you to get back out there and get back on, not on the horse, but get back on the ladder. And I, I want to I just underscore this for people who are listening to us because this is important. Some of you are of the view that you need to wait until you have all the answers. You know, I'll never forget, but when I was preparing for my oral examinations in graduate school, and I was responsible for every book that I had read in graduate school, which numbered 110 books, and I had them all stacked in my study, and I'm trying to go through them all, and I can always anticipate a question that I don't know the answer to. And I was always finding an excuse to go back and I need to look at that book again and that book again. And I'll never forget one of my professors saying to me, Larry, you're ready for this. You don't need to keep going back. You'll, you will never know all the answers. If you don't know, say, I don't know. But you are ready to take your oral examinations. Just get in there and do it. And I did. And I, I performed well and I actually enjoyed it. But I want to say to those who are listening, here's a guy. Um, in my opinion, you, you're the most knowledgeable guy I know of, not just know, but know of on the subject of Islam and as it compares and relates 
to the Christian faith. And um, you got out there. You didn't start at the top. You, um, you, you got knocked off the ladder literally and figuratively, and you just kept going at it. And, uh, you know, if more Christians were doing that, were engaging with their neighbors over the backyard fence and at the water cooler and, you know, at the lunch table, our culture would look completely different right now. But you did this. And so you're having a fair amount of success with the cultural critique. Continue. Yeah, it was this cultural critique that, I mean, this historical critique that really opened my eyes to this. And I realized... That's what I meant, by the way, the historical critique. This was really the Achilles heel. This yeah. is the one area that they were not prepared for. Uh, they could take on... Even when you confront Muhammad's proclivities, sacred proclivities, people would say, well, yes, but he was relevant for the 7th century. In the 7th century, you need to keep him in that century. That was perfectly okay for him, a 53-year-old man to marry a 7-year-old girl and consummate when she was 9 years old. That was quite normal back then. Today, no. But back then, so don't measure him with today's uh, today's measurement stick. You've got to measure him in the context, in the milieu that he lived in. And that's what we do all the time. We do that as Christians also. When we're looking at Muhammad, uh, Moses or Abraham, we measure him in the context that he lived. And that, that's how they sidestepped that. So we weren't getting very far with those kind of questions. But when I started asking these questions, uh, you know, is where, can you show me any reference to a place called Mecca from any documentation from the 7th century or before? If this is where Adam and Eve were sent to, shouldn't have someone have known about it? If this is where Abraham lived and went into the Kaaba and destroyed all the idols and then when I was thrown into a fiery pit, can you show me? Look at every one of you. You have 300 prophets that are buried in Mecca and they were buried with the, in a praying position because they're still praying. With all the digging that's going on, somewhere they should have come across one of these prophets. 300 of them all around the Kaaba. Look at all the... The fourth highest building in, in, in the world is there looking down over the Kaaba, that big, that big uh, clock that's 45 feet across. You have to build foundations to build a building that high. Show me anything that has been dug up. And one thing, what's the oldest thing you can find? And guess what they have found? The oldest thing they can find is an old Ottoman fort from 1200. 1200? Wait a minute, Muhammad died in 600. So you can see 600 years later, they find the first artifact that they could find from this place called Mecca. That showed me that there is a problem with this place. I, I asked simple questions like, look at Mecca on a map. What do you notice about Mecca on a map? Let me ask you this. See if you could see where I'm going with this. You've seen Mecca on a map. Where is it located? It's located in Central Arabia. Yeah. What's there around it? Have nothing. You know, just nothing. Nothing. And <laughs> from nothing comes nothing. It's like Auburn. I mean, there's just not a thing around it. <laughs> okay. There, there's a reason why he's saying that because we're in Alabama. We're not going to get into that. But it is much, if there's nothing there, the first thing you need for humans to exist is water, Right. In order to have water, you need water in order to have vegetation. Once you have vegetation, then you have people. Once you have people, you have towns. If you have towns, then you can go to cities. Once you have cities, you have, you have civilizations. Once you have civilizations, then you have history. There has never been any water. If there is no water, then there's no people, there's no civilization, there's no history. That's the first problem. So show me any water in Mecca prior to the Zamzam well being discovered. And look at the date for the Zamzam well. The Zamzam well, which is there today. There has never been any water in Mecca. For that reason, there is no history. That's why when Pitta Shakruna went around looking for documentation of this city called Mecca, she couldn't find it anywhere, not one reference until 741. Muhammad supposedly died in 632. That's over 100 years later. It's finally listed in a document, but that's, that goes way up in southern Turkey. It's in the wrong place. It's not put on any map until 900 AD. That's the 10th century. Using these arguments, were you seeing any converts? That would be an obvious question if somebody's listening to us. Hundreds. 
Where do you think Hatun got most of her con almost a thousand converts in just three years? Just and and to, tell, to, tell, tell our listeners who uh, Hatun, Hatun is. Hatun only uses polemics and she uses the historical critique. Now she goes, she zeroes in on a whole nother she's side. She's Turkish. She's about five feet, two inches tall. She's fearless. She gets up on the ladder. She takes these people She's on. taken over my ministry for me. She's she, they, they tried to kill her. They, somebody took a knife. Multiple and, times. Just a few months ago, they tried to actually stab her in the head. They broke the blade on her head. You can see the videos. Was there and, and, she, and she gets up and continues to. <laughs> Ten minutes later, she's up blood everywhere and she's still just preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. But she goes into mosque after mosque after mosque, and she asks an even more damaging question. She says, you believe that this book called the Quran is eternal. It has always existed. Your Quran makes that claim in chapter 85, verse 22. Your Quran says that in chapter 10, verse 15, and also in chapter 18, verse 29, not one word, not one letter. It has never been changed. In chapter 15, verse 9, that Allah protects it so that not one letter or word can be changed. This is what your Quran is teaching. That's what you teach. You have to. Therefore, not one word, not one letter. The Quran we have in our hand today is the eternal Quran. It's the same Quran that was given to Muhammad in that 22-year period from 610 to 632. It's the same Quran that Uthman then finally wrote in his final uh, rendition in 652. So from 652 till today, 1,400 years later, not one letter, not one letter has been changed. That's what all Muslims believe. Let, Jay, all this raises so many questions, and we're going to discuss this in uh, um, other episodes. Well, let me tell you what Hatun does with this. But, go ahead. So Hatun goes to Morocco. There she's teaching. She goes into a bookstore, and she says, I want an Arabic Quran so I can share it because I'm teaching it. And the guy says, well, which Quran do you mean? <laughs> he says, what do you mean, which Quran? She says, well, over here we have Warsh, and over here we have Hafs, and over here we have Kalun, and over here we have Kis She says, stop. What are you talking about? Now, she's the, son, she's the daughter of a very well-known imam from Turkey. She has grown up her whole life in his family. She has always heard there's only one Quran. It has never changed, not one word, not one letter. The Quran we have today is the same all over the world. It has always been the same, eternally been the same. Man cannot even have one. Man cannot be allowed to change one letter, not or edit or dead or delete or accrete. You cannot change whatsoever because that would corrupt the word of God. And here he's saying that he's just named six different Arabic Quran. So she said, well, give them to me. So she bought them, brought them back to London and showed it to me, and I started laughing. These are known as kira'ats. Kira'ats means readings. I've known about this because I studied this way back in the 1980s under Dr. Gerald, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Dudley Woodbury. He talked to me about this. Gerald Hotting refers to this. Patricia Crone refers to this. This is well known in academia, but not on the ground. No Muslim has heard about this. And, and most people thought they'd been destroyed in 1925. 1924. 24. They were thrown into the Nile River by a guy named Al-Haddad. And then, so, the, so the belief was that globally that there was only one... The Hafs Quran, the one that he chose. That was it. That's all 30, that there was. There were 30 Qurans, official Qurans at that time in 1924. They were trying to have standardized tests in high school, and they were coming up with so many different responses that they had to f choose just one. And so they went to this guy in Al-Azad University, Muhammad Al-Husseini Al-Haddad, and they said, could you choose just one? And he chose the Hafs Quran. The Hafs Quran is the one I have in my hand right there in my bag there. And that's the Hafs Quran that we're using all over the world today. The problem was they th threw the other 29 into the Nile River, thinking that would do away with it. But they were only there in Cairo, only in one city, and only amongst the high school students. These Qurans are being published. I have, back in my, in my room right next door, I have two of them that are have 5,000 differences between them. So what was Hatun doing with she these? She found these, brought them back. We went down to Speaker's Corner in 2016 and held up 26 of them. 20. 
56 different Arabic Qurans. And this is what she takes to all her mosques. She goes around from mosque to mosque to mosque, showing these Qurans to all of these imams who have always been told, and they're preaching this, they're teaching this every Friday, that there is only one Quran. There has to be only one Quran. Otherwise, it's no longer the word of God. It is full, is open to corruption. If you can have one word corrupted, well, she's found 93,000. Yeah, and that's because the Quran if I understand correctly, the Quran, unlike the Bible, where we translate it into vernacular languages, uh, we are constantly updating it because language changes, meaning changes. And so we no longer speak the way we did when the 1611 King James Version was, uh, even even the NIV has changed, you know, since uh, since its, its early days, sometimes not for the, for the better. But we're of the view that, you know, that language is constantly evolving and that in order for the meaning of the Bible to be clear, we have to constantly be, you know, translating it uh, into the culture. And uh, so that means we have Russian translations and we have um, French translations and English You're translations. Point. None of this is true related um, to, to this Islam. This has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, explain to me what it is that I'm missing here. Because, <laughs> because somebody here listening to this, what they're going to say in response to you, Jay, is they're going to say, well, well, the same thing can be said of the Bible. Nothing whatsoever. Okay. Well, explain it then. It's as if I were to tell you there were 30 different Greek New Testaments. Not one of them's the same. If I were to tell you there were 30 official out of chosen out of 700 different Hebrew Old Testaments, not all in the Masoretic text, but not one of them is the same, and that there were 93,000 differences in the texts for these different Hebrew Old Testaments. How would you respond to that? Oh, that'd be highly problematic, wouldn't it? Well, still, you still haven't got too much problem because we believe that man wrote those texts. Yes. See, we don't make the claims about the Bible they make about the Quran. Can you see how devastating this is? But it's even worse than that. This it's even gets worse than that. We're now finding that almost all of the Quran was never written in Arabic to begin with. The Quran that we have in our hand today has been traced back to Aramaic what we call Nabataean and Syriac Aramaic texts written by Christians, all in the fifth and sixth century, written as lectionaries for the early for the church in that part of the world, taken from the lectionaries, interposed into Arabic, but they those who interposed them into Arabic, they, the Arabic at the time had no vowels and no dots. There are five dots in Arabic. You have three above the letters and two below. If one above it's a not, two above it's a ta, three above it's a tha, one below is a ba, two below is a ya, so it could be not ta, ta, ba, ya. Those were all invented in the 8th century because no one knew what they were reading. They had no idea of what the text they were looking in front of them. Then there's three vowels that change it, much like it is in Hebrew. But see, this did not exist. These vowels and these dots were not there in the 7th century when the Quran was first being put together by the Arabs. But they had to find places, they had to borrow from other sources. That's why they borrowed all this text from Christian Aramaic lectionaries and the poetry in the Quran is all from Christian hymns and homilies all written in Syriac all about Jesus but what they had in front of them they couldn't read because they didn't read Aramaic so what they do they started putting a dot so you put your dot here for this word and you make it a na and I see it and I might want to make it a ta and he sees it and he wants to make it a tha and suddenly we have three different words so then you've got to make sense of those words, especially in a sentence. So you decide to put your dots where you want to. I put my dots where I want to. And you call yours the Larry 
rendition. I call mine the J rendition, and you call yours the Chris rendition. And we have now three different Qurans from three different authors written between the 8th and the 10th century, all with different dots. And then schools, people in my area of the world, uh, I live in Pennsylvania, so people in Pennsylvania only memorize my Quran, my Quran written with my dots in it. And here in Birmingham, they memorize your Qurans with your name. So yours is called the Larry Quran. But let's just put it into Arabic. You are the Hafs, I am the Warsh, and you're the Kalun. So we have three different Qurans written in three different cities with three different communities memorizing them. They're not the same memorization. You can't get rid of them because if you're going to memorize the entire Quran, which is about the size of the New Testament, you're not going to change what you memorize. When I come along, say, well, mine's the official one. Can you see how devastating this is? What's more, when you take those dots and vowels off, and this is what's been done in Germany, Dr. Luxembourg, well, actually a guy named Dr. Gunther Luning did this in 1970. He decided to take the dots and vowels off and decided to go back and find out where, what were the original dots and vowels. He took it back to the Aramaic. There he was the one that found that these are all Christian texts. But by taking these Christian texts, they eradicated any reference to Jesus. They eradicated his, any reference to his divinity. These were lectionaries that were praising. Yeah, they're corrupted texts. They are absolutely bastardized. And it's, yes. And they it's, bastardized everything. Don't, don't use nasty words on our show. But the, uh, See, the, the, now let me stop right there. Did you notice he called that nasty? <laughs> that is the best word for what I'm going to describe next. I'm going to show you why bastardization is the best way to do this. Let me give you a beautiful hymn by Ephraim in Surah 23. I don't know of any hymns that use that word. Ephraim is, let me finish. What the, okay, define bastardization. Jay, of course, I'm joking. Um, I would use that word in reference to Joe Biden, actually. So I have no problem with the use of, uh, of the word as it relates to the text. But you go ahead and make your case. Go ahead. Taking what is beautiful and holy and making it unholy. Here's an example. It's illegitimate. It's, it's, it means illegitimate. And that's what we're talking about because the, uh, the text itself, the Quran, it's, it's, it's a kind of syncretism, isn't it? I mean, there's lots pulled, not just from the Christian faith, but pulled from all kinds of stories. I mean, at least, it, it, at least some believe that the Quran is a collection of, of ideas that are picked up along the, the, from the caravans and the ideas that, would, that you, don't, you don't buy this. You, you don't buy that at all. No, because we, we, we've now found out a lot more. That's, okay. that's the old thought. Okay. And you're reflecting, that's fine, because you're reflecting what they thought maybe 10 years ago. Yes. This has all changed because of what the Germans are finding. Okay. The Germans are way ahead of us, and they pretty much can reproduce the entire Quran now. That is interesting. So they're, you're able to find it in this. So... I want to shift gears just a bit because we've got about... Do you see why Hatun has got onto something and is destroyed? This is why Hatun is being... Uh, that's why her polemics are so devastating. That's why polemics is causing hundreds, thousands coming to the Lord. And we're seeing it now. I would suggest in about another 10 years, once this gets out into enough platforms, we're going to see tens of millions of Muslims leave Islam. Because this destroys everything they've known about Islam. And it's not anything that to do with sexual proclivity. It has nothing to do with uh, immoral characterization of a person. It's all to do with the existence of even this man or this book or this place, the book and the man in place. We're destroying all. We'll come back to that in a, in another episode um, where we're going to continue our conversation with you, but we've got about seven minutes left on the show. And what I want to talk about is, you know, I, I, I want there to be kind of marching orders, um, you know, to a show like this. And there are a lot of people who would listen to this who'd go, you know, I'm really grateful there are people like Jay Smith out there, you know, who are willing to get on a ladder and uh, say these things and do these things, but not me. Um, 
Uh, there are a lot of Christians who are afraid to say anything when it comes to um, really, you know, Marxism, critical race theory, sexualization of children, the kind of stuff we're seeing in our culture, much less Islam. I mean, they're very nervous about this. I'll never forget um, years ago, um, 2015, I wrote a piece. It was after Charlie Hebdo. I wrote a piece for USA Today. You don't get to title things. They, they title them. And they title it because they're looking for SEO, search engine optimization in their titles. And USA Today titled the article, Christianity and Islam are not comparable. And I was, had written the article in response to all the claims after Charlie Hebdo you know, where Muslims had killed in the Bataclan, where Muslims had killed so many people. And immediately the progressives in the last left come out and say, well, Christianity is a violent religion too. Charlie Hebdo happens, the Bataclan happens, and immediately Christianity is under attack. And I was saying, whoa, 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 this is ridiculous. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to publish the article, and I have friends who are telling me, don't do this, don't publish this article, please don't make any reference to, you know, to me or my family or to the organization. Or I mean, they're that nervous over this issue. What do you have to say to people about courage, about getting out there and proclaiming their faith? Not necessarily with, with Muslims. A lot of people that are listening to this show don't know any Muslims. They don't have any Muslim neighbors. But they're nervous to share their faith um, for fear of somebody saying something nasty about them on social media or perhaps uh, getting marked off the party list or missing a promotion. What do you have to say to people like that? Yeah, and I think what you're asking is the same thing that was the, the, that was asked of Paul back in the first century. And you need to ask and ask, see what Jesus Christ said about this. Uh, Matthew 10 is probably the best place to go to place because Jesus was commissioning the 12 to do just that. He was sending him out and he says to the 12 disciples, I'm sending out as lamb before wolves. And what are the five things he promises there? Not in the same order, but I'm going to show you what the five are. First of all, he says, if you go in my name, you're going to be hated. And we don't want to be hated. We're fearful of being hated. We've we confused be being civil and being liked with salt and light. We love to be loved. Yes. Secondly, he says, you're going to be persecuted. How many people who are listening to this show have ever been persecuted for Christ's name? Very few. You're going to be jailed, he said. You're going to be put in jail for my name. You're going to be flogged. That means you're going to be beaten in jail for my name. And then finally, he says, you're going to be killed for my name. Those are the five things that he promised the disciples when he was commissioning in them. And I stopped and thought, hold on a minute. Every one of the disciples was hated. They were all persecuted. Every one of them was put in jail. They were all flogged at some point in their lives. And all of them, except for John, were killed. They were all killed. They received their commissioning. So what is what has changed in the 21st century that was any different from the first century? Is that not also our commissioning? Are we not asked to do the same thing, to go out in Christ's name, regardless of how the response is? We are going to be hated. Listen, why aren't we being hated? Because we are so fearful of being hated. We don't want to be hated. We want to be politically correct. Uh, we are so fearful. Well, it's even worse than that. If you are being hated, uh, you will have other Christians who will begin to beat up on you and say, Jay, you're, you're, you're not being winsome. You're not doing this the right way. Um, this has become a, become a major, a major thing. I, I wrote a piece for Fox news, um, which kind of proved the point. I, I wrote a piece called candy assed Christians. You, you said bastards earlier. So I think I can say the word ass and, um, candy assed Christians. 
And I was, I was playing off of a term that my father used. My father, whenever he saw a man doing something unmanly, he would say, that's, that's candy-assed. And uh, my father wasn't a believer. And, uh, uh, but the point that I was trying to make was simply that um, we've lost our will to fight. We've lost our will to engage the culture. And what did Fox News do? They changed the name of the article to Evangelicals Need to Stop Being Wimps, <laughs> which kind of uh, um, you know, blunted the force of the article. But nonetheless, they initially, they did publish it with the, with the original title to begin with, and, it, and that, that, that article went vi- uh, viral. And, um, and I thought it was interesting because at the time, what was going on was that uh, um, Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee had called on Christians to support Chick-fil-A that was under assault for their, uh, their family values. And um, Barnabas Piper, John Piper's, Pastor John Piper's son, said he found this too controversial and he wasn't willing to engage on this. And I thought, brother, if we cannot count on you to buy waffle fries in a, you know, in a, in a Chick-fil-A sandwich, exactly when can we count on you when we're talking about engaging the culture? I mean, Christians... You need to really be ready to engage the culture, to engage the fight. And as I'm closing the show here, we've got just about a minute here. Jay, anything else you'd like to say? No, I think you said it very well. And I think that's the difficulty. We're, we are not willing to receive our commission. I think we have become, I don't want to use the word, but Candy asked, maybe timid. And even, even the way they changed your title. <laughs> Talk about wimps. It was yes. a wimpish title. A very wimpish title. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to have had you um, with us uh, for the show today. And uh, I think my, uh, I got a battery that's dying here. But uh, you can find us on BeanPod. You can find us on Apple uh, Podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. And you can find us at LarryAlexTaunton.com. That's LarryAlexTaunton.com. Tune in next time because we're going to be talking with Jay Smith some more. We're going to get really burrowed down into the details of what Islam is, what it looks like. So thank you so much for being with us on the show. Have a great day. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, We are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?